Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so we are continuing our study in Acts with chapter 2 at Pentecost. Last week, just a quick summary of chapter 1, the disciples had spent 40 days with Jesus after his resurrection. And at the end of that season of 40 days, Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to go to a place and I want you to sit still and wait for the fulfillment of Isaiah 44, 3, Joel 2, the fulfillment of John the Baptist's words. I'm going to baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. That that is going to transpire. That is going to happen. And I want you to just go and I want you to wait for it. Now, after last week's message, um, I had a couple questions um, that I... Well, one primary question that I kind of wanted to address just as a sidebar before we get into it. John chapter 20, verse 22 tells us that the morning that Jesus rose from the dead, he, um, he saw the, the ladies, uh, then he, there's the Emmaus Road, and then that night he comes into the room that the disciples were in, minus Thomas, and he re- rebukes the disciples for not believing but then John 20, 22 tells us that Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now that moment, um, I consider their baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's their salvation moment. And if you hadn't listened to last week's message, I encourage you to go listen to it, where we talked about the difference between biblically this concept of being baptized in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Spirit and how denominations kind of claim those different things and how those ideas transpired and we kind of build theology around that, but how we're working from the assumption that baptism in the Holy Spirit is this understanding of its kind of salvation. That's what Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12. You were all baptized into this one spirit. Now there's no more Jews, Greeks, all that. He's arguing that this wordage, this verbiage, Baptized in the Holy Spirit is what we could use to understand salvation and then filled the spirit of these subsequent ideas or these subsequent moments of of the spirit filling you and equipping you and um, for his purposes. So I I would argue that that moment, John 20, 22, was the disciples baptized in the Holy Spirit and that they were told to go and wait for this promised moment because what happened to the disciples was not just reserved for the disciples. It was for everyone. And so you've got these guys who are now believers. They're going to wait on the promise of the Holy Spirit because they're going to be the stewards for everyone else. Because now the Spirit's going to be poured on everyone and they're going to need instructions and the apostles are the ones who are going to give those instructions. The apostles are the ones who have the authority to dictate Scripture. They're the ones who have the authority to dictate, say, look, this is what Jesus meant when he said this. This is what we can do. This is what we can't do. This is how we should be fought. Who determines that stuff? Now that Jesus has ascended, the apostles have been filled with the Spirit, but now everyone is being filled with the Spirit. So that's kind of just a 
Sidebar, it's what we discussed. I, I would consider John 20, 22, the moment that the disciples got saved, their baptism in the Holy Spirit, but this moment we're about to read in Acts chapter two is when everyone starts getting saved and filled, and, and the disciples are there in that moment. They're not getting saved again, but they are getting filled. In Acts two, Luke actually uses that phrase. We'll see in a minute, they were, in a minute that they were filled with a spirit. So you got the disciples, They're baptized in the Holy Spirit the night Jesus raises from the dead. Now they're commanded to wait in the upper room for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's gonna be poured out on all believers. At that moment, the believers are gonna be saved, they're gonna be filled, the the disciples are gonna be filled, and you're gonna see a manifestation of that filling. Something's gonna happen after the Spirit fills them. Peter stands up and starts preaching in boldness, but also, this strange manifestation of speaking in tongues starts taking place. And that's kind of where we're gonna go today. But the reason why I'm saying all this is to, to, uh, and I I kind of argued this last week, I'm teaching Acts from the perspective of of a continuationist. I believe that the gifts of the Spirit, that the working of the gifts of the Spirit did not cease at the death of the apostles. It is something that is continuing to work on past them. So Acts is a cross-section of what normal Christian life should look like. It's, it's, it's an expression of what uh, modern Christian churches should be operating and working in. And so following salvation, there are these multiple moments of being filled with the Spirit. We should seek them, we should pray for them, we should ask for the Spirit to fill us. And the reason why is because when we're filled with the Spirit, it comes often with a renewed passion for Jesus. It comes with a boldness, as you're gonna see with Peter today, the guy who couldn't even, he couldn't even stand up and testify for Jesus at his trial. He was hiding in a corner, and when a little girl was like, hey, your, your accent sounds a lot like Galilean. Were you with him? He couldn't even stand up to this little girl who's accusing him. Now. He's empowered and filled with the Spirit, and he's standing up and preaching in front of 3,000 people. Like, how do you go from that to that? The Spirit, that's how you go from that to that. And so what I'm saying and what I'm arguing for is, and I think this is what Luke is arguing for as he gives us the historical account of Acts, is that you see these people who have been saved and who are regularly experiencing these moments of being filled with the Spirit, and, and the byproduct of being filled with the Spirit is, is you get some kind of renewed passion for Jesus. You, you, Maybe uh, at your salvation experience, you get filled with the Spirit and there's a manifestation of, of boldness in some way, but you also get these spiritual gifts that are outlined throughout the Bible. We'll cover that today. But we need these subsequent fillings. Now you would maybe argue, well, if you're filled, if you get saved and you've got the Spirit and you're filled, then why do you need to keep getting filled? Like if a glass is filled with water, you can't put more in it. Um, and I would argue that the, what you're using to assume that, um, you just use a different analogy. And I said this last week, Wayne Grudem uses an analogy in his systematic theology book of blowing up a balloon. When you blow into it, it's full, but you can keep blowing into it and you can keep getting full. Um, John Piper uses an argument when he talks about um, of the capacity of, of something, when he says that this, this glass, when you fill it up, it's full, but it's not as full as a gallon jug, and that's not as full as a five gallon bucket from Lowe's. I don't think he actually said Lowe's, but that's my. The argument being that there's this idea of being filled and continually being filled. Why do we need to continually be filled? Well, a couple of reasons. Because we need to increase our capacity, but also because we're guilty often of quenching the Holy Spirit. That's biblical, quenching the Holy Spirit. Guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit. And so there's this, there's a, 
a precedent set in Scripture that following salvation, there is an expectation on the lives of believers to continually seek the Lord, fill me with your presence. Because I can't accomplish what you're asking me to do without you filling me. And in order to accomplish this thing, I need to be filled. And sometimes that filling comes with a new expression of faith, a new expression of boldness, a new spiritual gift that was previously not at work before, but now can be at work moving forward. We'll talk about those things today. But as we get into Acts chapter 2, I think it's, under, it's, it's helpful to us understand the historical timeline of what's happening here. You've got... <clears throat> these moments of people getting saved and there are these expressions of the Spirit filling them and then these miraculous things transpire. And those, I would argue, are, are necessary to accomplish His work even today. Amen? When you stand and you look <laughs> at the mountain <laughs> of evil that is prevailing in this world today, I would love to have coffee with you and talk about how it is not necessary to be filled and empowered with the Spirit to accomplish His work facing that level of darkness. He wants to fill His people to accomplish His work in a very dark world. You with me? All right, let's get to it. Acts chapter 2, let's start in verse 1. Now, I promised last week in this study of Acts that there would be more maps and there is one today. I'm going to throw it in the middle here. Right when we get about verse 9, we're going to switch from throwing the Scripture up on the screen to the map because I want you to see where all of these people are coming from in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now that's important. Put a pin in that. They're all together in one place. They're all in unity. Verse 2, suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, not fire, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So you can kind of imagine everyone's in this room, they're all praying, all of a sudden this mighty rushing wind blows into the room and everyone starts looking around and it looks like little flames of fire are resting above the heads of everyone sitting in the room. And at that moment they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and following that filling of the Holy Spirit, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And as the sounds, excuse me, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing these 120 speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Aren't these people from like the woods, the backwoods? Aren't these a bunch of unlearned fishermen? How do they speak my language so eloquently? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. All right, verse 9. Now we're going to see all the different nations that were represented in Jerusalem. 
and are hearing their own native tongue. I want you to see the breadth of what's taking place here. So we're gonna throw this map up here on the screen. Jerusalem's down here uh, in, in the kind of the, like to the center at four o'clock. And I'm gonna start reading these out and I want you to kind of get a sense from where all of these folks are coming from and what they're hearing. Verse nine says, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Isn't that wild? Why are there so many different nations represented in Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a second. But I want you to kind of take in the magnitude of what's happening here. This is essentially the known world. And you've got all Jews from all of these different regions in Jerusalem, and they're all hearing these 120 speak up in their own native language. Verse 12 they were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others began mocking and said, oh, they're filled with new wine, meaning they're drunk. All right, let's pause there because this is a very wild moment in the history of the church. So what I wanna do to kind of unpack this wild moment is I wanna talk about the two things that are really focused in that Luke is discussing here, and that is Pentecost and tongues. Buckle up. <laughs> Let's talk about Pentecost first. Why were all of those nations represented in Jerusalem? It's because of Pentecost. Pentecost is not something that just happened on this day, although it is something that transpired on this day, but there was a Hebrew festival that was going on on this specific day, and it was called Pentecost. But it wasn't always called Pentecost. It was referred to as Pentecost later on through Jewish tradition. Originally, when all of the Jews were gathered around Sinai and God starts telling Moses, I want you to arrange all of these festivals and organize your calendar around the worshiping of the Lord, there was this festival called the Feast of Weeks. When I say weeks, I mean W-E-E-K-S. The Feast of Weeks. It was later referred to as Pentecost, but the Feast of Weeks was a celebration of the moment that God shows up on Mount Sinai and gives the law and the covenant to his people. Now it wasn't just this, it was also a festival where the farmers, which was pretty much almost everybody in the culture, would bring their, uh, their crop, their, their first of their crop, the first of their livestock, they would bring it as an offering to the Lord and it was referred to as a first fruits offering. So the Feast of Weeks was two main ideas. The first idea being we are 
recommitting ourselves to the law. We are remembering the law of Moses. We are hearing it read. We are recommitting ourselves. We are saying we are God's people. And this is the festival that we celebrate that commemoration. But it is also, while we're here, we also brought the first fruits from our field and we're going to give them to the Lord as an offering. It's a first fruits offering and it's, it's with the expectation that if I take the first best corn that grows in my field and I give it to the Lord, I'm trusting that since I didn't feed my family with that, I gave it away, the Lord is gonna honor that by growing even more corn in my field. Do you follow? The first fruits offering is this idea that I'm gonna take the first, the best. Everyone's hungry. We, we see, oh man, things are growing. I'm gonna eat that. No, that's not for us. That's for the Lord. So I'm gonna take this as the first thing that came out. Well, well, dad, how about the rest of it growing up? No, no, we're gonna give this to the Lord as a faith way of saying, Lord, I trust that you're gonna send more even, and, and I can give this first away because I know you're gonna send more. You follow? So I'm gonna to go to Jerusalem no matter where I live around in the world, I'm going to go to Jerusalem on the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. I'm going to have my offering with me as a symbol that I know God's going to send more. And I'm going to commemorate my commitment to the law. Now, some of you are like, ah, I see where this is going. Before I get into a quick comparison on why this moment is so significant. I think it's important for us to understand why it was referred to as Pentecost. Penta meaning 50. From the moment of Passover, okay, let's go, let's go back into the history of Israel. They're in captivity in Egypt. They've been crying out to God for freedom and God starts sending these plagues on Egypt. You remember the stories? The last plague is, I'm gonna kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt unless they, they acknowledge faith in me by killing a lamb and smearing its blood over the doorposts. Because tonight what I'm gonna do is, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hover over Egypt and if I don't see the blood over the doorposts, I'm gonna assume that the people in there don't honor my covenant and I'm gonna kill the firstborn in those homes. But if I do see the blood over the doorposts, I'm gonna see that those are my people and I'm gonna pass over them. I'm not gonna kill the firstborn in that home. I'm gonna pass over. That, that last 10, the 10th plague, that killing of the firstborn, that passing over, that was the moment where Pharaoh had enough and he let the, Egypt, or the Hebrews go free. So that's an important moment because that's the beginning of the entire story of Israel becoming a nation. So Passover takes place from the point of Passover to the point where they get to Mount Sinai is 47 days. So they leave Egypt, they're running from Pharaoh, there's the whole thing with the Red Sea, they cross over from Passover to Sinai, getting to the mountain is 47 days. When they get there, the Lord tells Moses, tell the people to prepare themselves because in three days I'm going to show up and speak to them. The people prepared themselves for three days. At the end of the three days, the people gathered and they're all standing at this mountain and they watch, uh, Exodus tells us, 
that the fire, like literally the whole mountain was covered in smoke and fire just rested on the mountain and God started speaking out the 10 commandments. And when he finished, everyone is shaking and paralyzed in fear because they're viewing the presence of God and they're watching fire consume this mountain. They're like, ah, and finally they go, when God starts speaking, they go to Moses and say, please, please, please tell him not to speak anymore. We don't, we don't want to hear from God. How about you go talk to God and then just tell us what he said? Because we can't handle that. It's scaring the children. <laughs> Literally, that's what happened. Now, this isn't what God wanted. God wanted to be with his people. He wanted to speak directly to his people, but his people, they had rebellious hearts and they didn't really want that. They wanted a go-between. So now I want you to follow me in this imagery. You've got the Egyptian Passover. You've got 47 days, three days, that's 50, that's Pentecost. God visits in fire on Sinai in Exodus 19 through 20. Now follow me. Jesus died on Passover. Let's fast forward 50 days. And the Spirit has been poured out and the fire is not resting on some mountain, it's resting on His literal people. See, God doesn't just do things when it's convenient or whenever. He's orchestrating everything according to His calendar. And everything is threaded and tied, whether you're aware of that calendar and aware of how deep these traditions and this orchestra, it doesn't, the way that this is orchestrated, if you don't grasp it, it's, it's okay, it's, it's still orchestrated. But look, if you can start making these connections, the things that, you, that we're aware of, they become far more, more sweet. And this is why I'm such a proponent of walking through the Old Testament, because it's not this thing that doesn't exist anymore and it's not applicable. No, everything about the way that we live life is rooted in a long thousands of year history of God working through his people to get to this point. It's all connected and so we should be informed by it. Now Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf so we don't need to celebrate these festivals but we should know what they are because they, they, they have imagery that informs the way we view things today. Because what God is saying is that my ultimate purpose was not to just give this commandment, this law to Moses and then him deliver it to the people. Hebrews 8, 1 through 12, Jeremiah 31, 33, his ultimate goal was to put the law inside of them, to write that commandment on their hearts. And this moment of the fire of God resting on the people is his symbol of saying, the thing that I wanted to do back then that my people couldn't even handle, I'm doing now. I'm fulfilling what I've always wanted, which was putting my spirit in my people. I didn't want to live in a house. I wanted to live in my people. I want to fill them with my presence and send them out to accomplish my purposes. That is the magnitude of what is happening here. It's not just a strange occurrence. It's like, oh, well, that was kind of weird. It was weird, right? Yeah, that was definitely weird. All right, what's next? No, 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 don't run past it so quickly. Yes, it's weird, but it's weird for a reason. Why is, these, why is these things as a fire resting on their heads? Because what these people from all over Europe and, and the Middle East had come to witness was another Sinai. Yes. That's what's happening here. Yes. 
This isn't something new in the history of the church. This is the next mile marker of the things that God's doing. And that's the important part of the way that we understand the way Scripture works. We're not looking at this as some completely new, like, right turn. Oh, well, God's going to do something completely different. It's not going to be connected to anything he did before. He's throwing the old plans away. No, we're making progress as we roll down this road. All of this imagery, all of this stuff, the temple, all of the pieces of furniture, they were a type and a shadow of, of the great high, the great high priest Jesus. Right? There, there's, there's symbols of these things up in heaven when he goes up and spreads the blood on the mercy seat. That, that's the, there's the, the, the real one sitting up in heaven and the ones down here, this is all just replicas. Everything is connected. And this moment is the pinnacle of that. The way that God says, I'm going to do something really spectacular, this is what he's talking about. So why were all those people there? Because they were there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. But they had no idea that they were about to witness another Sinai. Now, let's talk about tongues. Tongues was the sign that God gave of this miraculous infilling. And I believe that it filled not just the apostles, but it filled all the 120 as they were speaking in um, languages they didn't understand. So what I want to do is kind of go through the highlight of what we see transpiring with this specific gift of tongues. You've got all these 120 speaking in this language they don't know. So we can see that what God is communicating is that there's no partiality here. And you'll see this in what Peter says in Joel in a minute. The Spirit is being poured out on everybody, not just the apostles. It's being poured out on everybody, sons, daughters, um, slaves, free. When they began to speak in other tongues, they were doing it under the utterance of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives them utterance and they speak out, meaning they were in control. This is not a thing where God is like reaching down and grabbing their tongue and shaking it and forcing words to come out. He's prompting them, he's giving them utterance and they open their mouth and they start speaking in these languages that they don't know. And what were they speaking? They were speaking the mighty works of God. So they were testifying without a language requirement. They weren't, you, they're, essentially what God is saying through this work is you don't need to speak this language to declare my glory. And when they were filled, they spoke out. So it's a byproduct. So the moment they were filled, this new spiritual gift was demonstrated. Now, I just want to demystify something here. Like This gift of speaking in tongues, it, it's, it's not some kind of heightened spiritual experience. It doesn't make you more spiritual than anyone else. It is simply one gift among many gifts that are listed in the New Testament. It is not an ultra uh, spiritual experience. It, it doesn't kind of, it's not ethereal and takes you somewhere else. This gift, according to what we see here, these people are in their full capacities. They are speaking in a language they don't understand in the same way that I am speaking to you today in a language I do understand. I'm aware of where I am. I can see everybody. I, I've not lost control. And I think that's important to understand the way that these gifts work. The spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, meaning that when God moves on his people and gives them utterance, he doesn't take control of their bodies and they have no more control of themselves. He empowers, he fills, and the people take the action. You follow with me? This is really important. 
Because especially when you start studying these things, you, you see demonstrations of this from kind of really strange fringes, and you assume that this fringe representation of a spirit, spe specific spiritual gift is the, the de facto understanding of how this always works. And I can just tell you that that's not true in Christianity and it's not true anywhere else in the world with anything. The fringes of everything, the weird, bizarre uncles of everything, politics, movies, like, look, um, if we're just gonna say like, what, what is it like to be uh, like an actor in Hollywood? You're not gonna use Nicolas Cage as like your baseline. Do you follow what I'm saying? No offense to Nicolas Cage, but. <sighs> what I'm saying is that when God does this, these are just normal fishermen from Galilee and God empowers them and they act on the unction from the Holy Spirit and this thing starts taking place. But they're acting on it, it's their voice, they're speaking it, but the Spirit is giving them unction. Now the question that I feel like you should ask in this moment um, maybe one of these questions you probably are asking and another one you should ask. If tongues is listed just as one spiritual gift among many, then why is this one being called out? Well, let me address the first part. Tongues is listed as one spiritual gift among many spiritual gifts, and I wanna give you an example of what I'm talking about. So if you'll put that second slide up there on the screen. This is an outline of all of the spiritual gifts that are uh, recorded in the New Testament, okay? Now, 1 Corinthians, now a lot of them are in Corinthians because Corinthians was a wild church. They loved the spiritual gifts, they wanted to operate in them, but the reason why they wanted to operate in them is because they, they viewed it as a way to make themselves look more spiritual than other churches, and that's why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, to put them in line. You can't use these things that God gave you to make you look better than everybody else. So he outlines in 1 Corinthians 12, eight through 10, and then again in verse 28, a multitude of gifts that the Spirit gives people within the church. Apostle, prophet, teacher, miracles, kinds of healings, helps, gifts of administration, tongues, interpretation of tongues, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, Gifts of healing, miracles, prophecy, distinguishing between spirits. Marshall, which one of those are still uh, in circulation today? I would argue all of them. There's nowhere in the New Testament that tells us uh, two, seven, and nine out, the rest still in operation. Okay, now I would, I would personally argue that apostle is uh, a gift that is not that it's no longer in operation, but the qualifications for that office can't be fulfilled by anybody living today because you had to have been called by Jesus and seen him physically after his resurrection. And I don't know anybody that's seen that, so I would argue that there are no apostles today. Some of you are like, well, I don't know about that, but look, I'm not calling anybody an apostle, okay? If you introduce yourself as apostle, like you're just Greg, I'm not, you're not an apostle. <laughs> All right? I just made some of y'all so mad. Ephesians 4.11, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher, depending on how you read the Greek, it could be pastor, teacher. Um, uh, but some translations have them separated. 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, here's a fun one. Uh, marriage is a gift and celibacy is a gift. Lord, please don't give me that gift. <laughs> Romans 12, six through eight, prophecy, serving, teaching, encouraging, 
contributing leader, leadership's a gift? Yeah, it absolutely is a gift because there are some people who aren't gifted in it. You don't want them leading anything. Mercy. First Peter 4.11, speaking, service. Why is this so important? Because not everybody gets every gift. The Spirit gives gifts as He wills. And because not everybody has every gift, we are dependent on one another in the body of Christ. And it it requires us to be able to identify each other's gifts and allow them to minister accordingly because you don't want somebody who's gifted in prophecy greeting people at the front door. (laughs) I've seen it, trust me, you don't want it. You want people who are gifted in teaching and speaking up here teaching the word. I showed you this because I want you to understand the importance that that God places on the spirit equipping his people with these specific gifts. The reason why we have this is because you can't accomplish what he wants you to accomplish without empowering you with these gifts. This This is necessary. And it's necessary because he tells us it's necessary. So if tongues, right there, is one gift among many, why is it the only gift being demonstrated today, or in, in this moment, of Pentecost? So that's, I think that's probably one of the questions you should ask. We, we talked about that. If it's one among it, why is it highlighted? And then here's the other one, is it for everyone? I kind of said earlier, no, it's not for everyone, but I'm gonna give you some scripture to kind of back that up. So the first question, why is this one highlighted among all of the other gifts? I would say it's not to elevate tongues, it is to elevate God's supremacy and sovereignty. Now follow me here. Do you remember when I said at the beginning we we're reading verse one to put a pin in that thing that they were all in one place, they're all in, all in unity? There's another place in the Bible where all the people were in unity together. And the result of being in unity was they decided they wanted to build a tower all the way up to God and elevate themselves to the place of God. So the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. When the people were in unity, there was nothing they couldn't accomplish. And so what what did God do? He confused their languages. We've got another moment in the history of the Bible where the people gather together, they're all in one place, they're all in unity. What does God choose to do in Acts 2? He, he chooses to unite their languages. I think the reason why God chose to mark this moment with the gift of speaking in tongues is because this gift uniquely acknowledges what was transpiring at this moment. God is bringing and calling all of the nations back in. See, he was the one that dispersed them, but starting today, he's calling them all back in. Come up to my mountain and learn my ways, is how Isaiah would describe it. So why this gift, why this moment? Because God is raising a banner over the entire earth saying, I've got control over everything, even the languages of mankind, and I can disperse them at will, and I can supersede them. So that's not an issue in hearing the presentation of the gospel. I can spread and I can gather. 
I think that's why this gift is demonstrated on this day. Now the other question, um, does everybody get this specific gift? Now it depends on who you ask. If you ask somebody from a Assemblies of God background, a Pentecostal background, charismatic background, they're gonna tell you, yeah, everybody can speak in tongues. Uh, the goal is everyone should speak in tongues. Once you get saved, there's the second moment. We talked about this last week, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, it, and you know it took place because the byproduct is always speaking in tongues. And I've discussed about how um, I deviate from that path. I don't, I don't believe that that's what Scripture teaches. I believe Scripture teaches that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what we would look at as being saved. And then following that, there's these moments of being filled with the Spirit. And sometimes they can manifest a gift like speaking in tongues or like word of wisdom or uh, being empowered to be a teacher in a way that you had not ever been a teacher before. Um, I think it's probably helpful if I walk through why I argue this point through scripture. We're not gonna turn there, but if you're taking notes, jot this down. First Corinthians 12, seven, Paul is outlining the gifts of the spirit to the church in Corinth. And he says in first Corinthians 12, seven, that each, give, each gift is given as a manifestation for the common good. So we get these so that we can all grow together. First Corinthians 12, 11, he says that the gifts come as the Spirit apportions to each one individually as He wills. So how do we get these gifts? Well, you, you, the Holy Spirit chooses. So what's our role? We pray, Lord, um, fill me. And I pray for whatever gift that you would have give me to accomplish your work. Give, give me that gift. I'm praying for it. Give me that gift. But 1 Corinthians 12, 29, do all prophesy? Are all teachers? Are all apostles? Do all speak in tongues? The assumption to those questions would be no. So no, I don't believe that everybody speaks in tongues. But 1 Corinthians 14.1 says we should earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. All of those gifts, we should earnestly desire them, pursue them in, in prayer. We should not forbid speaking in tongues, 1 Corinthians 14.39, but understand that not everyone Will, it, some people will operate in it, some people will not operate in it, but those who do operate in it, there are strict guidelines for how this should operate. It should be done decently in order, and Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 12 how it should be uh, taken place. Uh, a person should not speak in tongues in a public Sunday morning gathering unless there is an interpretation of that tongue. And the reason why is because if you speak it out, okay, that looks nice, but nobody knows what you're saying without an interpretation. So he gives guidelines for how this works, but I, I, hopefully that answers some of the initial questions on the top of your mind. How, do, like, uh, how, does, this, how does this work? Well, it works because the Spirit works it. He does the thing. And some of us have these gifts and some of us don't, and those who do have a strict responsibility to operate within the parameters that he gives us, especially with this gift. So with that, let's go on to verse 14. I'm sure that has sparked a numerous amount of questions. You feel free to send them to me uh, this week if you like. But let's go to verse 14 and see what the byproduct of Peter being filled with the Spirit looks like. It says, but Peter, standing with the eleven after everyone's been accused of being drunk because they're speaking in tongues, um, he lifts up his voice and he addresses them and says, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, which would be 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
And I'll quote it to you if you don't remember it. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Most commentaries agree that when Joel is referencing that and Peter is quoting that, he's quoting the specific heavenly things that transpired when Jesus died. We're told that when he died, basically an eclipse happened and the whole land went dark in the middle of the day. And then that night, historically, we can go back and track the day we think Jesus died on that Passover. There was a blood moon that night. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter, already saved, is filled with the Spirit, stands up with this new boldness and preaches like a man with no fear. And what does he do? He quotes the prophecy of Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, that God is filling his people. This isn't just reserved for a few folks. You don't have to just be an apostle. You don't have to just be Jewish. This is for everyone. And these signs, these miracles, these spiritual gifts, they're a demonstration that God is in the midst working in his people. Now, what is he working in his people? It's the thing that we studied last fall, last winter, when we studied Isaiah. What is God doing? He's building his kingdom through the foundation laid by the suffering servant. The suffering servant came and took all of the sin on his own shoulders, forgave the people of their transgressions, and called in the nations, not just the Jewish nation, not just Israel, all of the nations. He called them in from the four corners and said, now it's time to start coming. Just come, come. Every tribe, every tongue, come and learn my ways. Put down your weapons and learn my ways. This is what the work of the suffering servant is, and it is progressed into this moment of Pentecost. He's redeeming these people. And what we're witnessing here in verse 21 that everybody who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved from this moment, this point right here in history on Pentecost, all the way up till now, is what the Bible would consider the last days. Folks, we are living in the last days. And not just because the world is falling apart and it feels like he's coming back again. We're living in the last days because all the work that God has done through Israel and up through his servant and the way he poured out his spirit through his church has all come to this point in history so that from this point forward are the last days. This is it. There's no more working that God is doing where he's got to do something else and then he can call the nations into salvation. No, it, it, it began on Pentecost and it is transpiring today and it will end when he finally returns in the clouds. We're living in the last days, and I think that that should inform the way that we choose to live our lives today. There should be a sense of rejoicing and urgency that we live our lives with. Now jump down to verse 22. He continues preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus 
delivered up according to the, def- the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then he doesn't just quote Joel, he starts quoting David. Man, this being filled with the Spirit thing, he's, he's like a Scripture quoting machine. And that's what he was doing during those 10 days of waiting. Peter's reading the Bible in a, in a new way he had never read it before. He, he's seeing things he had never seen before. And so here he's quoting David, verse 25. This is a quote from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. For David saw concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let my Holy One see corruption. David is saying, I've got hope in the afterlife because my end is not just being cast down to the darkest of places. You have made known to me the path of your life and you will make full gladness with your presence. And then he turns to his brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us this day. You can go down and see where he was buried being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. David knew, because God promised him that one of his descendants would sit on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. What? Are you telling me that David knew Jesus would be born and resurrected? That's exactly what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that David, while he was alive writing the Psalms, saw Jesus, knew what God's plan was, and wrote about it in the book of Psalms. He wrote that he was not abandoned to Hades, did not, nor did his flesh see corruption. This is why David is writing these, because he knows he's not going to be abandoned because he saw what Jesus would be doing. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then he quotes again in Psalm 110.1, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. How does the Lord say to himself? The Father and the Son. The Father is saying to the Son, sit right here and I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ and this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter is quoting Scripture, and his essential argument is, look, (laughs) we're not making this up, guys. We saw this, but we're not the only ones to see this. David saw this. Joel saw this. Isaiah saw this. Do you know that stuff we learned about in grade school, about the coming Messiah, about the suffering servant? It was Jesus all along. It was him. Put your hope in him. So what was the crowd's response? We see it in verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every single one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. This promise of salvation being filled with the Spirit of God to accomplish His plans, it's not just for us, it's for everyone. And with many other words, verse 40, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So their response is conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts the crowd. They turn from their sins, and 3,000 people get saved. Look at what the Spirit of God does in the midst of weak men. A guy who was too embarrassed to say, that Jesus who's being beaten is my friend. Now that he's filled with the Spirit, he's got enough boldness to stand up and preach to an entire crowd of the same people who sentenced Jesus to death, proclaiming his kingship. And 3,000 people get saved. Now here's where I want to close today. There's a guy named Jonathan Edwards who was responsible. God uh, essentially used him to kickstart what we know as the First Great Awakening. And Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called Religious Affections during the First Great Awakening to kind of chronicle some of the things that were transpiring during the Great Awakening. Because what was happening during the First Great Awakening was that the Spirit of God would grip people and strange things would happen. They'd be having worship service and the Spirit of God would just show up in such a strong way that literally people would just fall on the ground. People would just crumble up on their knees and start shaking and crying under the weight of God, under the weight of God because they were so convicted at their sin, they knew they needed to be changed. Sometimes there were strange manifestations. Somebody over here just dancing in the corner. And Jonathan Edwards records during the First Great Awakening that one of the issues they had to resolve was how do you judge what is a genuine move of God? If you've got all these people having these outward manifestations of the Spirit of God doing things, how do you know if it's a genuine move of God? Because the church down the road could see, well, all these things are happening, so if we could just kind of like stage one person just kind of shaking over in the corner and this person just kind of start crying in the middle of the service, then then people would start thinking maybe God's here. Maybe we could like schedule revival for next Tuesday and everyone can kind of come in and we'll have a nice little revival service. This is what Jonathan Edwards says uh, in Religious Affections. He says, if you want to judge whether something's a genuine move of God, You have to look at things that Satan and man can't fake. All right, if there's a genuine manifestation, if somebody is really just on their knees during a worship service, or if somebody just kind of bursts into tears and you don't really know why, or somebody's just kind of, they just, they fall down. You're like, what is wrong with this guy? Well, there's precedent for that. Paul fell down when he saw the Lord. So how do you know if if there's something that the, the, the enemy could fake or that a human could fake to make them look more spiritual? How do you know what is a genuine move of God? How do you know if God's really moving or not? Jonathan Edwards says, you look at the thing that you can't fake and that is primarily a changed life. You can't fake a changed life. So what I wanna do to end today's study is I wanna look at what followed in the days of Pentecost. Great, we got 3,000 people that got saved. What took place next? Was it a lot more tongues? Was it a lot more people running around, falling down? What happened next? Let's look at it, verse 42. 
It says, after that, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And an awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, the day, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So following this miraculous moment, was a long trail of transformed lives. Devotion to scripture, to fellowship, to prayer, a general awe of God in everything they did, regular sharing and caring for one another's needs, continued worship in the temple and each other's homes, proclaiming the good news of Jesus everywhere they went. This text is where the Lord led me to when we planted Red Hills Church. I felt the, God, felt the Spirit of God tell me, I want you to plant a church. And the vision for this church is this. A church that is this. A church that is devoted to the teaching of the Word. A church that operates with a general awe for the presence of the Lord, a respect that this right here, what we're doing, like this, this, who stands here to preach, like this isn't your, like this isn't your stand-up routine. No one wants to hear your jokes. No one wants to hear your stories about your family and what movie you watch. This time, this is Word of God time right here. There's a general awe when we come in here. We're not going to just sing songs that are just kind of pleasant to get through one, two, three, and then we're going to get to the met. No, we're going to take our time and let the Spirit of God move through this place because transformation takes place. There's a general awe in not just in this place, but in your home. You don't speak the way you used to. You talk to your family differently. There's a respect. Why do I do that? Because I've got a God who's watching me, who's feeling me, and I've got I to operate with some respect for that. I don't just do my job just to get through the day. I do it as unto the Lord. He's who I'm working for. There's this general awe. There's this sharing of lives. There's this coming together for worship, but then dispersing and going out into each other's homes and studying the word together and learning how to like reorder your lives and live together in community. That's what we're hoping for. And it always cracks me up every time we start the beginning of the year when somebody comes to me and says, brother, what's, what's your vision for this year? I get this a lot from fellow pastors because there's this, I don't know, there's this desire to like, okay, it's a new year, new vision. What you doing this year? What's your vision? Where, where are you headed this year? Brother, we're heading the same place we've always been headed. <laughs> we're doing the same thing we've been doing for eight years. We're gonna, by God's grace, we're going to do it for another eight. We want to be a learning, loving, worshiping, and evangelizing church. Those are the four words that sum up what is taking place here. Acts 2, 42 through 47 is what transformed lives look like in Acts 2, 42, 47 through 47 is what I pray our church looks like. So my encouragement for us today is to keep your eyes on Jesus and live like this. Amen? Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.